There's a lot to cover this morning and excited to, to share with you this morning, so thank you for being here. <clears throat> so, in Psalm 8, um, David shifts his attention from his circumstances and the earthly struggles that he has to God um, in worship and reflection on God. Uh, very often within the Psalms, David recalibrates himself um, when fearful or distressed or depressed. Um, he recalibrates himself by remembering God and all that God is, all that he's done and all that he's promised. So here he shifts into a whole new psalm with that. The psalm is very deep in many basic doctrines, uh, too many to go too deeply in, and we also must follow it along into the New Testament to complete the message. Um, psalm 8 is an exception in Book 1, as it does not pertain specifically to David. Its concern is with all human, all human authority, not only David's rule. So let me read the psalm. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The reading of his word, let's go in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, our majestic Lord, and our Lord that is close and with us in your presence is here today. And we pray, the Lord, we would sense your presence through your spirit and through your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would guide my tongue, that only the words that you want shared would come out. We pray that you would guide the listener, that they would only hear the message that you want them to receive today, that you would be in this message this morning, and the Lord, you would be glorified, and we would be brought closer to you, brought more informed of who you are, and be conformed also by your word to the image of your, Christ, your son, Jesus Christ. Bless our time, the rest of our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I said, I'm trying to cover... I. I should have just stuck to one thing, but it was hard as you got into it to, to not get out of control and try to do everything. So I'm going to try to do everything, um, but in a concise way. So, so today we're going to look at who is God, what is man, God's first creation and man's failure, God's new creation and man's redemption. Uh, the psalm starts with one of these um, pretexts that, that um, many do. This one says the choir master, according to, to Getith. Um, no one really knows what that is. It may mean a musical instrument, may mean a musical performance directed uh, to be according to a tune of that name. Um, it's derived from Gath, which is a wine press, and it denotes a tune of joyous character. Uh, two, other, two other psalms reference the, the same thing in Psalm 81 and 84, which are both songs of joyous uh, character and expression. <clears throat> okay, so let's start. So first of all, who is God? A.W. Tozer says, states, We must not imagine what God is, for we who were made cannot accurately imagine God. We end up creating a God of our own imagination, which is an idol, not the true, the one true God. So, in looking at who God is, either we attempt to define God apart from God, or we look to God who has defined himself already through his word. 
When man tries this on his own, God is often either denied or he is brought lower to be more like man or what man wants him to be so man can live the way he wants to live, which is typically in sin or will be in sin. Um, Even believers must be careful allowing thoughts of deceptions to creep in regarding who God is. It can steal our joy, our peace, can steal our confidence in him. So in verses 1 and 2, it touches on, in terms of who God is, it touches on the name of God, the majesty and glory of God, and the strength of God. So first of all, if we think about a name, what is in a name? Um, What we know about a person is represented in their name. And the hearing of that name drives our thoughts and emotions and our response. Uh, Whether it's accurate or not, it's what we know and believe about the person that the name belongs to. And what we know could be about the person, what we've heard about them, or it could be through knowing the person, a personal relationship. For example, mentioning the name that, um, that are on many folks' minds this morning uh, brings about the thoughts and strong emotions, if I mention Christina Krantz. Most of you know, and it's been mentioned, she passed away this past week and is now face-to-face in the presence of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But for me, that name is Joy of the Lord, which she walked in. Uh, it's a smile and a laugh that was contagious and was always with her. Um, it was uh, someone who was compassionate, caring, had a heart for people. Nursing fit her well. She had a heart for her family. She had a special connection. It was building a relationship with her youngest brother, Andrew. She cherished that. She had a continuous desire to serve God. She ministered to the women here at Grace Life. Uh, I only knew a fraction of who Christina Krantz was, and I'm sure many of you could and will fill in the blanks in the coming days of what that name, Christina Krantz, means to you. So when, we, so when you hear or think about the name of the Lord, what comes to mind? Especially in times of grief, in times of severe trials, which David was experiencing. We know David knew the Lord from the opening words of this psalm, O Lord, our Lord. David uses two of the three most common names for God in the Old Testament. They are God, which he does not use, which is Elohim, and it means the supreme God, creator, supreme in power. The two he uses is, O Lord, Lord, all capitals, which Nate mentioned last week, is Yahweh. And it is the proper name of the one true God, the self-existent one, the eternal one. And the second name, our Lord, is a capital L with a lowercase O-R-D, and that is Adonai, or Adonai. It's the title where God is submissively and reverently addressed. It conveys dominion, authority, sovereignty, master, owner. So David crying out, O Lord, our Lord, is O Yahweh, our Adonai, or O self-existent and eternal one, our master and sovereign one. So God's character and all his attributes are wrapped up in his name, which is why it's majestic, which we'll get to. When we defer to his name, we're deferring to and we're trusting in all that God is. God even refers to his name as to why he acts or does not act. In Isaiah 48, 9, it says, For in my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for, I re- I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Asking God to act according to his name is deferring to who he is, deferring to his faithfulness, his mercy, and his grace with the motive of seeing him glorified. Uh, A.W. Tozer also mentions in the knowledge of the holy, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
Because what comes into our mind determines our thoughts and our responses. It determines how we live and how we respond to life and to life's trials. Do we call on and trust in him completely? When there are doubts or questions in our mind on the perfection and goodness of God, as David often did, we need to remind ourselves of who God is. And we need to continually grow in the knowledge of the Lord through his word. Uh, If you do want to focus, um, certainly through the word, you will get uh, the, the character and attributes of God. If you want to focus on a study in the attributes of God, I recommend two books. One is by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. Another one is by Arthur W. Pink, which which is the attributes of God. So we get into the majesty and glory of God. So in the first verse, after O Lord, our Lord, it's how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So David states how majestic or excellent his name is in all the earth. The majesty of God is not conditional upon man recognizing it. It exists throughout all the earth. His glory reaches above the heavens. His creation reflects only a small fraction of his glory. The more we recognize the majesty of God, the more we'll worship and glorify him with our lives. What is majestic about God is both the what of creation, but also, and maybe more so, the how of creation. Augustine calls it the divine imperative, or an imperative is an authoritative command. The how of creation is described once and speaks of the power of God's word. A command of God brought it about. Let there be light, and there was light. Also it says, and God said, and follow up with, and it was so. Jesus, by the sounds of his voice and his word, he spoke things into being. With his command, he calmed the storm in Mark 4.39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. In John eleven forty three, 43, <clears throat> the end of the verse, he, he states, Lazarus, come out. And the following verse says, the man who had died came out. The power when God speaks brings things, brings things out of nothing and brings life out of death. This should give us confidence in his word, as all he has spoken and what has been recorded either already has been or will be. Let us read and receive God's word for what it is. It's powerful, it's living, it's definitive. The source of these divinely inspired words are backed by the same majestic God whose words spoke things into existence, who controlled creation, who brought life from death. What a majestic God. And also his strength, thirdly, on who is God. David, in verse 2, touched on a familiar theme in the Bible, the idea that God uses otherwise weak things to display his glory and his strength. In 1 Corinthians 27 to 28, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And 29 says why he does this. Verse 29, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 2 in Psalm 8 says, Out of the mouth of babes, babies and infants, you have established strength before your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus actually references those words in Matthew 21, 14 through 16, where he has just finished healing the blind and the lame in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes, having seen these wonderful things and seeing the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. 
were indignant. They said, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. In referring to Psalm 8, Jesus is claiming here to be God. Those verses Jesus applied to himself in 8 applied to God. More evident that Jesus is God and uses the weak. Children are, power, are powerless and even more so in those times, yet God uses them to speak truth and praise his name. Remembering the power of God in his word is, is in his word and not in how eloquent we present it, which I'm counting on this morning. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, it's, it's not with words or eloquent wisdom did Paul preach, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So this is very encouraging. We need to faithfully share the gospel whenever the opportunity arises and not worry about being eloquent or how we say it. Uh, we want to, he wants to use us with all our limitations, all our weaknesses, all our insecurities. It is when we admit to these and acknowledge our complete dependency on him that God can and will use us. And we'll have no reason to boast in his presence when he does. So secondly, who is man? Just as man cannot define God apart from his word, we cannot accurately define ourselves apart from God. For we, the created, must look to our creator to know what we are. See, without God, man tries to define his existence and purpose. And in this, it's usually from his pride, and he grossly overestimates his significance and his righteousness. I recently heard an interesting statement. It says, it's not what we look at, but what we will look through. Regardless of what we look at, God, man, creation, it is when we look, when we are looking, it is what we are looking through that matters. Are we looking through our own understanding or are we looking through it with eyes of faith? Is the filter our minds and our wisdom to define what we see or is it God's word in the mind of Christ, which we are to take every thought captive? Given that, under, given that in Jeremiah 17.9 it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? It's clear that we shouldn't be defining anything because if it's from us, it will be wrong and it will be sinfully contaminated. In verse 3 and 4, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David now shifts to looking or pondering about God and then looks at man in relationship to God and what he observes. The heavens, not just they exist and are vast and beyond measure, they're the work of God's fingers. God set the heavens in place. So David doesn't just compare man to the greatest thing he can see, the heavens, but to the creator of those heavens. God is infinitely greater than the heavens. It's why God's glory is above and beyond the heavens. The heavens do not contain him or constrain him. And the Lord who made all this is still mindful of man and cares for it. And another word for cares for is visits him. Which becomes incredibly amazing, again, given our insignificance and, and, and smallness um, in comparison. So the God would not only, so that God would not only think about man, but also care for him is amazing to be active in our lives. Um, this addresses the question, I was listening to R.C. Sproul, and he said as a young man, he was asked, is God transcendent or is he imminent? Transcendence is, is he majestic, superior, supreme, high and lifted up, high and above the heavens? Or 
Is he imminent? Is he near? Is he impending? Is he among us? Is he close in proximity? Well, David acknowledges here that God is both. David is greatly humbled and amazed at God's both transcendence and imminence, high and lifted up, but among us and concerned of man. It is through understanding God's majesty and his care for us that we can rightly develop a response of humility, of praise, and of gratitude to him. So let's shift to God's first creation, as we know man's failure. So David now turns to creation for how man came to being and why, which he references in Genesis. He starts out with, you made him. It is God who made man. Man is a created being. We must search for purpose and significance, not within ourselves, not within creation, but from the creator's view and purpose. We will get nowhere and nothing out of looking for God and meaning apart from him, other than despair and confusion. You see, the pinnacle of God's creative activity was in the creation of human beings, male and female. They were made to be more like him than anything he had made. So not like the animals, for God made man, in the rest of verse 5, he made, them, he made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Heavenly beings here actually, depending on what translation you look at, could be angels or God himself. And Boyce, who's a, from a commentary, said, God's glory is above the heavens, yet he put this same glory and honor on man as a crown. This is an effective way of identifying man with God and saying that he was made in God's image, reflecting God's glory in a way other parts of creation do not. In Genesis 1, 26a, it says that God says that let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, Boyce continues and says, although, may, although made in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like the God to whom they look, men and women have turned their back on God. And since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and their duty, they actually look downward to the beasts and so doing become increasingly like them. So our reference point causes us to either aspire to be holy or aspire to just stay slightly better than the beasts. Uh, we, have, we were not made a little higher than the animals, but a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are to look up to God, to see, where we, to see where we came from, not down to animals or creation. Man's position in verse 6 through 8, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the, of the sea, whatever passes along the paths. So in this, man was to rule. He was to have dominion over God's creation. And he was given authority, which is what all things were put under his feet. So man was entrusted with God's creation. And this, parallel, this parallels Genesis 126, the rest of it, um, says the same thing in terms of let them have dominion over all the things and all the creeping things on the earth. So, how did we do and how are we doing today to look at creation? Right? Not so good. So, so what happened? Um, Kusick in his commentary says, Adam forfeited his power through sin to take that dominion. And the principle of death took away the power to rule. See, through Adam and our own sin, we went from rulers to slaves. We traded being rulers of God's creation to being slaves to sin. This was and is driven by the desire to be God, wanting to be masters of our own lives so we can call the shots. Uh, When we do this, we forget that because of sin, we can't discern or choose what is best for us. 
We are looking at our desires and not through God's plan and purpose for our lives. Sin blinds and sin deceives us. On our own, we human beings can't control anything, starting with ourselves. And because a man can't control himself, we have tension, violence, brokenness in families, in societies, and in nations. And quite frankly, looking at the state of the world today and where it is headed, sin seems to be taking over more and more. God is denied, or for many who say they believe in God, his majesty has been marginalized to where God makes no difference in their lives and does not affect their choices and how they live. They have denied their purpose to live for his glory. God of creation, or God, of course, knew man would fail to rule his creation. He knew ahead of time, which leads to his plan of redemption and the new creation. See, the new creation is not a reset of his first creation like the flood was. This is an eternal new creation where there is no longer sin or sorrow or pain. And the new creation is not something God does externally for us, but what he does in us. So God's new creation a man's redemption through Jesus Christ. So where do we get God's new creation from Psalm 8? Well, we, we get it from where Psalm 8 is referenced in the New Testament, in Hebrews. Hebrews 1 talks about Jesus' deity and his rule over the angels. Hebrews 2 talks about him becoming a man. So Psalm 8 is referenced, and it now applies to Christ as the last Adam. <clears throat> In chapter 2, we'll get through 5 through 15, but 5 through 8, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to to come, of which we are speaking. It has been tested, testified somewhere. What is, <coughs> excuse me, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And then he goes on, which is a little slightly than what we read in Psalms. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The rest of, chapter, or rest of verse 8 is kind of a problem statement because it's not accurate. It wasn't accurate yet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. The promise of Isaiah or this promise of Psalm 8, 4 to 6 seems unfulfilled. Everything is not in subjection to man, but the promise is fulfilled in Jesus. For God intended was not realized until Jesus came. And since man was given authority, Jesus came as a man to fully exercise that authority. Uh, if you notice in verse 9, it says, But we see him, it says, For we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We have Jesus presented the same way as man was, which reinforces that Jesus became a man, although he never became only a man. He continued to be fully God and fully man. But the difference in how this is worded from Psalm 8 is that it says, for a little while. See, Jesus became a man lower than the angels, to suffer and die to restore man's divine purpose. So he came as a man long enough to suffer and be our sacrifice. Morgan in a commentary says, In him we have had the full revelation of the greatness of man, but we have seen more than that. 
We have seen him crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God, he should taste death for every man. That vision creates our confidence that man will at last realize his divine purpose. So he came into the world to make possible the true destiny of all human beings. He tasted death for everyone, the death we deserved and what we earned from our sin. In verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So perfect through suffering. Jesus was already perfect when he came to earth. Perfect through suffering, the perfect here means prepared to be our Savior. His suffering made him a perfect Savior. In Romans 5.15, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 11 says, for, we who sa- for he who sanctifies and for those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The one source is one family or one heavenly father. We who believe, the sanctified, are now one with Christ, the sanctifier. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Uh, we do need to be careful calling Jesus our brother since he is so much more than that. But he calls us brethren. We come back to God's name in verse 12. He says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This refers to what Jesus' role or purpose was in coming. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven b it says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the name of the Lord is revealed through Jesus Christ. Both access to the Lord and understanding who the Lord is, is, is given to us through Christ. And finally, in 13 through 15 of Hebrews 2, it says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The Son of God defeated the evil that Adam brought into the world which was death. C.S. Lewis states, the resurrection is the first and mightiest miracle of the new creation. Uh, in, in Corinthians 15, 49 it says, thus is written, the first man, Adam, came a living being. The last Adam came a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, we were born physically into God's creation first. And for those who believe and surrender their life to Christ, receiving the forgiveness of sin, we are born again spiritually into eternal life, and and we become new creations According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So for Psalms to Hebrew, referencing the first creation to the new creation, we are kind of in between where we are now. We are new creations in Christ, but not fully redeemed. 
and we are still in the fallen creation. So in that state, we actually groan. It says in eight in Romans eight twenty to twenty three, for the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here it's saying the whole earth, whole creation, is groaning under the bondage to corruption. We groan as we see the evil and injustices of this world. We groan in our flesh as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We groan as we lose loved ones. But for, but for believers, it is only a little while until we join them. And for those who have gone on before us, they groan no longer. For they have received, received the redemption of their bodies. And we do groan overseeing and feeling the effects of fallen man, but we lift up our eyes for our redemption draws near. What Mike shared, shared in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fear of death is deeply embedded in humanity. Jesus, by his death, destroyed the power of death and frees us from the fear of that death. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it says, but our, citizen, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As we see here, all things are now subjected to Christ, our eternal king. So Psalm 8, 9, reflecting on who God is and what he has done and what he is doing for man, the psalm ends as it began, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So application this morning, this went out well, twice as fast as I thought. I shouldn't have cut out those seven pages of notes that I, uh, <laughs> I thought I didn't have time for. <laughs> Although I did tell my wife I would just repeat everything three times real fast so you'd finally get it, so maybe I can go over it again. No. <laughs> for application this morning, uh, first and above, else, above all else is to know the Lord, the transcendent and the imminent, the majestic and the intimate. And not just about the Lord. We need to know him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For again, he reveals the Father to us. Secondly, let us not trust or rely on our thoughts, our feelings, or our emotions. Our God can reveal to us who he is and who we are. He made us, he cares for us, he died for us. And he knows what's best for each of us. He made us to glorify him, so doing so has got to be the very best thing we can do and the very best reason for us to live. Consider how God wants to use your weakness to show his strength. Again, God doesn't use us in spite of our weakness. He uses us because of our weakness, and we admit to our weakness and turn it over to him. 
You know, in 2 Corinthians, it says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And as we see, lastly, as we see the collapse of this first creation because of sin, let us remember this is not our home. Until God calls us home, though, let us be faithfully fulfilling his great commission. Let us go and make disciples, for he is with us. He's with us now. He'll be with us through all eternity. And let's remember for those who are in Christ that have gone on before us, we will see them again and rejoice. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that reveals who you are, what you have done, what you have promised. We thank you for the power of your word that we know that one, you have done all that is said in it, and you will do all that you promise. We claim it in your name, and we trust in your name. We praise you for your majesty, and we recognize your glory. So, Lord, help us to draw near to you. Help us to know you better and know you more. May that be the goal of our lives. And from knowing you, Lord, we know that what will come of it will be faithful obedience, will be a joy that we cannot control, We will be sharing the love of Christ, um, not out of duty or obligation, but out of desire and out of joy to share the love of Christ. And Lord, may we remember that you are our strength at all times. When we feel weak, we can count on you, for your grace is sufficient. And Lord, may we not get discouraged by what we see around us, but keep our eyes on what the end is, redemption of our bodies and rejoicing with you and in your presence for all eternity. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you are doing and have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.